morning, Crossroads. All right, yeah, how's everybody doing? Because we're going to need some life in here today. We're going to need some life. So I'm Mike. I'm one of your pastors. And newsflash, today's message is not rated PG-13. Yeah, you get it. I know. You guys get it. It'll, this one will be rated G, maybe PG if I get really riled up. Okay. So in any case, we are, we are continuing with the Real Deal Faith series, and, uh, or with the uh, Faith That Works series, and we're going to talk about Real Deal Faith today in James chapter 2. Now, the first 13 verses of James chapter 2 contain a valuable message about not showing favoritism or prejudice. So I encourage you to read that, but because we have so much to do today, we are going to have to spend our time in the rest of the chapter. Now, did you know, speaking of the book of James, why, yes, we are speaking of the book of James. Did you know that the book of James, along with Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation, almost didn't make it into the Bible? There were some people in the first century that felt like there's some content in those that maybe don't seem to go along with the rest of the New Testament. And we're going to address that today. But even the famous, the great reformer, Martin Luther, called the book James an epistle of straw. He didn't like it. He said it wasn't good for anything except wood, hay, and stubble just to be used to stoke fires. He was not a fan of the book James. And that's pretty significant because, as we know, Martin Luther had a lot to do with reforming the church. Um, So we're going to take a look today at the reason that some people struggle with this book And we're going to start in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. So please take out your outline, follow along. Here we go. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, why is this controversial? Well, I think the reason that some people believe it's controversial is because the central message of the gospel is that God gives eternal life to anyone who simply and only believes in Jesus Christ for it. As we read in many passages throughout the New Testament, here are three from John. John 3, 16. Well, that tells us, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him, in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then John 5, 24 says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. One more, John 6, 47, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. So which is it? Are we saved by faith or works? Because James 2, at first glance, seems to say the opposite. It says that faith without works is dead. But Jesus seems to be saying that we are saved by faith alone without works. So, here's what I would say. Whenever scripture seems contradictory or confusing, always look at the context. 
Always look at the context of what you're reading because with a careful and a contextual study of this passage, we'll see that there's no problem in reconciling what James writes with what Paul and Jesus taught. But the context is the key. So we're going to look at the cultural and the grammatical context of the passage. And let's go on and read the next section of today's verses. James 2, 18 to 22 reads, Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So now that we've read these chunks of scripture, let's stop and look at the cultural context. James is writing to a new church filled with new believers. I mean, after all, Christianity at this point is, you know, roughly 30 years old. So everything is new and we're, we're trying to figure out here, well, how do we live in light of what Jesus did for us? I think these are the same struggles that we face as new believers too. I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in him, but what do I have to do? And in fact, let's be honest, in times that I've shared the gospel with people, they'll ask me, so are you saying that I don't have to do anything? That eternal life is just a matter of putting my faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross? And I say yes, and people tend to have a real problem with that. It sort of offends our sensibilities. Well, I have to do something to earn it, but that's the message of the gospel, that we can't. So, we also want to look at the grammatical context of what's going on. If we look at James's words and his sentence structure, it's going to help us figure out what he's really saying to us here and now. So let's look at the alleged contradiction. James begins verse 14 by asking two questions. First, he asks, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? So right from the start, we see that the issue, he's not really discussing eternal life. He's asking what's profitable, what is beneficial, what good is it? And then we come to the second question, can that kind of faith save anyone? Now, this is clearly a negative rhetorical question. When he says, can that faith save anyone? The answer implied here is no, it can't. Okay, so this seems to really contradict what we read in, say, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which tells us God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for it. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Okay, so are these two passages in contradiction? Because if they are, the Bible can't be trustworthy. And if the Bible's not trustworthy, then what are we doing? What's the point? So does it matter? Maybe you're here today and you don't have a faith in God. Or maybe you know some people, you have some friends who consider themselves agnostic or atheist. And what do people love to say? Well, the Bible's full of contradictions. And that's sort of a catchphrase that's been going around for a couple of thousand years. I would argue, no, it's not. But if it is, then what's the point? 
because we can't trust it. The difficulty here is that, in fact, all of the historical evidence points to the fact that this book, James, was indeed written by the James who was the brother of Jesus. Actually, the half-brother. You get it, right? You know, same mom, different dad. Okay. All right. So Jesus' little brother, James, who was leader of the early church in Jerusalem, he did indeed write this book. And if he's the original and the actual author of this book, then it's got to be in Scripture. So because of that, we have to figure out how the error is not in the material, but it's actually in our interpretation. And that's what we're going to look at now. But I would flatly say there is no contradiction here. And in fact, there are two explanations of why they are not contradictory. And both make sense and both hold water theologically. So you can choose. I'll let you know which one I tend to favor. But here's the first explanation. First, it's because of the definition of the word save. Now, please write this down. The word save is defined as to deliver and always must be understood in its context of what it's talking about being delivered from. But save is defined as to deliver. So you get home from church today, you're kind of tired, kind of sleepy. You're like, I think I'm going to think I'm going to put on golf and take a nap because their voices are so soothing. Right. And maybe, OK, that's what I do. Uh, and so, you know, maybe you do that and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't eat anything. I'm hungry. All I had was like a little donut that already had little kids fingerprints on it at church. So, so you're thinking, I better get some lunch. So you pick up your phone and you call DoorDash or Uber Eats and they show up at your door and they hand you the bag and you're like, ah, oh, you saved me. And theologically, you would be correct because he did deliver. So you're welcome. So yeah, that wasn't in my original notes, but it was just so good. I had to write it down. So in scripture, Saved does not necessarily mean delivered from hell or saved to eternal life, unless the context indicates that that's the actual meaning. Ephesians 2, we know for a fact that's the context. He's talked, Paul's writing about eternal life, salvation from our sins. But what is James telling us? Well, some would argue James is not talking about salvation in that context. Look at James chapter 2, 12 through 13. So we're going to back it up a little bit. James writes, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in this context, James is talking about judgment, judgment, judgment. All right, if you go after our passage, James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Amen to that, right? I can tell you guys are like judging me right now. <laughs> but if James is bracketing what we're talking about today with passages talking about judgment, then this interpretation would say that it is a judgment based on our works and there's only one judgment of that sort in the Bible. 
There are lots of different judgments mentioned, but there's only one judgment for Christians based on our works, and that's what we would call the judgment seat of Christ, or some call it the Bema seat judgment. And it's there we will be judged according to our works done while we were here in the body on earth. We read about this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul's writing. He says, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So the first explanation is that this judgment is what James has in mind right here. He says that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, although we already have the wonderful gift of eternal life, the issue that day will be, what did we do in this life? What works, what good deeds did we do? And that's where James says, faith alone will not profit. So as the new Christians in James's church have said, well, what role do works play? James answers, before the judgment seat of Christ, it is works that will be profitable. What if, I, what if I believe in Jesus, but I don't really have any works? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, where Paul is also describing this judgment seat of Christ. And he says, anyone who builds on that foundation, he's referring to Jesus, may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hair, straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. So you can hear kind of the structural similarities to James. Does the work have value? What does it profit? If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So, ouch. But it's not talking about the salvation of your eternal soul. It is the testing and the judgment of your works. And some would say that is what James is talking about. So you're in heaven. You're standing before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, let's look at the works that you accomplished after you became my follower. And so those works, if you accomplished a lot of things and served a lot of people and you were obedient to God, then those things will hold up and you will receive a reward. You will get a crown. Awesome. But just remember, what do you do with that crown? You take it and you lay it at Jesus' feet. So a lot of people like to discuss, well, there are rewards in heaven. And you know, Mike, when I get to heaven... I'm going to be living in a big mansion right next to Jesus. And I'm thinking, okay. And, you know, I'll be living in a shack down there on the other side. And I'll be sweeping, you know, the golden streets. And be, you'll say like, hey, Mike, how's it going down there? And I'll say, well, it's heaven, I guess. You know, that'll be, that'll be heaven. I don't know if that's exactly what it's going to look like. I kind of don't think so. But Anyway, the first explanation of this alleged contradiction is that this passage is not referring to salvation for eternal life, but it refers to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if that first explanation seems like a little too much theological gymnastics going on, well, there's another more common sense, more pragmatic explanation. You know, that one kind of feels like it's a little bit too much stretching. You know, I don't know if it necessarily fits. 
So here's the second one, and this is the one that I favor. And this one goes like this. Works are the result of a true saving faith. And the logic goes like this. We're going to boil it down like a philosophical argument. Okay? Our first premise is that faith saves us. We saw that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Just focus on verse 9. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. So it's faith in Jesus' work on the cross. And if you're here and you don't understand what that means, basically, really briefly, what it means is that as humans, we're all broken, we're all sinful, we're all imperfect. But to come into the presence of God and spend eternity with him, we must be flawless and perfect because he can't compromise his godness. So there must be a way for us to be made perfect. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is what pays the price for our sins. Jesus took our place. He was our substitute. So that's what we mean when we say placing our faith in Jesus' work on the cross. So what this passage clearly tells us is that we are not saved by the things that we do. And can I just pause for a second and say thank God that that's the truth? Because let's be honest. Sometimes... And I'm not pointing any fingers, but you know who you are. Sometimes Christians can be kind of obnoxious, right? And can you imagine how insufferable we would be if we could earn our salvation? We would think that we're so much better than other people. Like, oh, well, God told me that I earned my way into heaven. And we, if we had that attitude, and let's be honest, some of us do... If we had that attitude, then how intolerable would Christians be? But this flatly states, no, you're not saved by your works. You can't earn God's love because he already loves you. So stop playing church and acting like you're better than other people because of what you do. Amen? So that's our first premise. Faith saves us. Our second premise is that a person who has faith produces good works. And the Bible tells us this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We read in Galatians 5, and 23, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. We call this the fruit of the Spirit. And, and what it means, it's not saying, hey, go out and practice doing these things. It's saying if you have a true relationship with Christ, then you, the, the tree that is you, will produce this as fruit. Much like an apple tree will produce an apple, or an orange tree will produce an orange. The tree of you will produce love, joy, peace, etc. So that's the message here. A person who has faith produces good works. So those are our two premises. So let's get to the therefore. Because those things are true, therefore... A person who does not produce good works does not have saving faith. And James 2.17 says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, you might be thinking, Mike, okay, double ouch, that's pretty harsh. Are you saying that a person who doesn't have the fruit of the Spirit demonstrated in his or her life might not actually have the true saving faith. Well, I could try to unpack it and explain it to you, but I think it would be more clear 
if somehow, if some way, through the magic of technology, we could watch a video that would explain it more clearly than I can. There you have it. I mean, it's the, I don't have to, you know, unpack that too much, I hope, but you sort of get it. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves Christ-like, but we're not actually living a life that's like Christ, then maybe that's not what we should call ourselves. So again, works are the result of a true saving faith. And I'll tell you why I favor this explanation. It seems to fit better in the context of what follows. Look at James 2, 18 to 20. We read, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? James is explaining here that true saving faith will always motivate us to produce good works. Now think about a match. Okay, let's say you're building a fire and you've got it stacked up nice, you know, and it's kind of in a a cone shape there and you've got the kindling and maybe some crumpled up paper and then maybe when nobody's looking, there's a little bit of lighter fluid on there. And then you take out your box of matches and you strike the match and nothing happens. So you attempt again and you attempt again. If the match won't catch fire, what good is it? Because the match has one job. It has one job, much like an NFL kicker. It has one job. And if it can't do that job, then what good is it? Our job is to be Christ-like. And so we see here James is addressing his Jewish audience who call themselves children of Abraham. And they say, well, you know, I have faith and I believe there's only one God. And James says, good for you. You know who else believes there's only one God? The demons. Doesn't mean that they are saved. They believe it's true, but they don't believe it. See, there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. You know Steph Curry? No, you don't. You don't know him. You know of him. Maybe some of you here have met him. Maybe there is one person in here that actually does know him and has a friendship with him. I don't know. But for most of us, no, we don't know him. We just know of him because there isn't a relationship. And James is explaining that If we don't have a relationship with God, we know of him, but we don't know him. So you might be wondering now, okay, now we've addressed, we've dispelled the controversy. There's two logical explanations. You can pick which one you think seems the uh, most correct, but they both hold water theologically. So what does all this mean to me? And that's a fair question. What are these good deeds to which James refers? Well, we see it demonstrated as the passage continues in two ways, both horizontally in how we relate to each other and vertically in how we relate to God. James is a very practical pastor, so he sets out to illustrate and apply this for his readers in verses 15 and 16. 
We read this earlier. He writes, suppose you see a brother or sister has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? James is essentially saying, look, somebody you know is without clothes and they're hungry and you're not doing anything about it. How does that help? Jesus addresses this directly in Matthew 25. He's telling a judgment story of the end of days. And he talks about the sheep and the goats and how they're separated. And we read in Matthew 25, 35 to 36, Jesus says, For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. See the similarities to what James writes? It's meeting people's needs. And of course, when the sheep ask Jesus, hey, when did we do that for you, Jesus? Because I don't really remember that. And the king will say, I tell you the truth. This is Matthew 25, 40. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And as you can imagine, that's not what happens with the goats, and it doesn't work out so well for them. So we can see again that a true faith in Jesus produces the good work of caring for those in need. Now, we have many ways to care for people in need right here in our community, both within and without the church. Inside Crossroads Church, we have so many ministries you can be a part of. If you have musical talents, if you're good with tech, if you like to welcome people, maybe you want to work with kids or with youth. We even have a team called the Care Team. If you like caring for people, get on that team. So we offer plenty of ways for you to serve. It's not difficult to find opportunities. Step outside the church. We have the Compassion Network. We have organizations that will feed and care for the homeless. All these different things that we can be a part of. So that's the horizontal good deed that James is talking about, caring for others. And James closes the chapter with two illustrations of the second type of good deed. And he uses Old Testament illustrations because he knows his Jewish audience. So let's look at verses 21 to 24. James writes, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Now, really briefly, I don't know if you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, but Abraham was this old guy and he was married and he and his wife could never have kids. And then one day God says to him, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And in your old age, you're going to have a son and he's going to be the father of a great nation. So time goes by, a few other things happen, then Isaac is born. And Isaac is this chosen child. And then God says, hey, Abraham, I do need you to do one thing for me. Go ahead and take Isaac up the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And what does Abraham do? 
He says, okay, God, you know, whatever you say. And so he goes and he ties him up and he even gets so far as taking out a knife. And God says, whoa, 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 I was just testing you. I just wanted to see your obedience. Of course, you're not going to kill Isaac. Take him back home. You got to wonder what Isaac's thinking this whole time. Like, whoa. So, so we see here that Abraham didn't just believe God, but his actions accompanied that belief. Let's look at the second example. James 2.25. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Well, who's Rahab? Well, Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. And when the spies came in, she hid them. Now, Jericho was a big fortified city. There's no way Rahab believed that these Hebrews were going to come in and take this city. But she believed in God. And she knew God had the power to do that. So she said, I will help you. Please spare me and my family. And so we see in both Abraham, who is a righteous man, and Rahab, who is a prostitute, both of them not only believed in God, but they evidenced it through their actions. And so in both Abraham and Rahab, we see our second application of what James calls good deeds, and that is this. A true faith in Jesus produces the good work of obedience to God obedience. And when we use the word obedience, what we're referring to is that Jesus isn't just your Savior who saved you from your sins, but he's your Lord. He is sitting on the throne of your life. Okay? He took the wheel. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is your Lord. If you want a great example of obedience, well, we, John just talked about one uh, earlier when he was making announcements. We have baptism coming up. Baptism is a great example of obedience. Does, does baptism save me? Nope. It does not save you. But it is an outward expression of your inward faith. So it's a great example of obedience producing an action. So as we wrap up today, I want us to look at some primary takeaways. All right, they're right there at the end of your outline, so you can refer back to it. It's very easy to see. First, we are saved by faith. And again, let me clarify. We're not saved just by faith in something that's, you know, nondescript, the force, the universe, which, by the way, I found out that the universe is a place, not a person, just so you know. Um, so we're saved by faith. Second, faith without works is dead. If our faith in Jesus doesn't produce good works in our lives, then it's dead. Third, true faith produces good works. If we have that faith inside, it will be evidenced by the things we do. And finally, good works are shown two ways. First, caring for each other. And second, obedience to God. So as we look at this real deal faith, I ask, what place do works have in the life of the Christian? They don't get us eternal life. 
They don't help us keep eternal life, but they are the result of our faith, allowing God and others to see Christ's love shining through us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we freely acknowledge that sometimes this stuff is hard to figure out. So thank you, God, for giving us clarity and helping us understand that our faith in you should produce the good works of caring for those in need and of obedience to you. Give us the courage and the strength to live this way by your power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.